now bring you the Making Much of Jesus podcast featuring the late Dr. Jack Hudson, the founding pastor of the Northside Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And now today's edition of the Making Much of Jesus podcast. Turning your Bibles now to the book of Job, chapter 42. That's page 597. I've mentioned this verse to you. I want to bring a message this morning. I said to my wife as we were having breakfast, I said, I wished I had studied more. I wished I had made it two messages and uh, so that we could have gotten to the depths of it. Now, that doesn't mean just a long message. It just means sometimes it's better to have it in two messages so that you can think it over. I don't know of any verse in a long time, and that means years, that has affected me as this verse. In Job chapter 42, verse number 10, page 597, I want you to see it. If you mark in your Bible, and by the way, if you mark in them, they have in the bookstore some pencils, four different colors. They don't go through, and they're not like a crayon, but they just uh, kind of like a highlighter, but different. No, no liquid about it. Finest I've ever seen. They're made in Germany. I use that. I've underlined it. I, I've, I've gone, covered the whole thing in one color, and there's two words I've put in another color because of the emphasis upon them. I've read this verse. I've quoted this verse every day. I talk to the Lord about it in prayer. Now, at a hasty reading, you can say, well, that doesn't mean much. I can do that. That's no problem at all. I don't think you can. In fact, yes, when I give an invitation this morning, I'm going to give an invitation for unsaved people, for people who need to come and rededicate their lives, and people who come and unite with this church. I'm not going to give an invitation to those of you who say, I understand this, come forward. Because if you understand it, you don't need to come forward. And if you don't understand it, there's no need coming forward. So I, I'm not pushing that. I've gotten to where I don't push invitations as I once did because I believe the best thing to do, if you believe it, go out here and start doing it. That's the proof of it. That's the proof of it. Now, the setting, briefly, you know Job. The Bible tells us in chapter 1 of the book of Job. And incidentally, Job is the very oldest book in the entire Bible. It was the first one written. I know Genesis is the first one. That's chronologically. But Job is the very oldest book in the entire Bible. Don't you believe that God sets down principles in that book? It has to do with patience, of course. It has to do with suffering. And while God loves, allows that, and it shows how God restores people back to that position they once had and even double the blessing, we see all that. But here's something, though. I've read the book of Job. I've preached from it many times. I'm not sure that the depth of this verse ever penetrated my soul as it has now. I wish you preachers listening would take special note. I wish you Sunday school teachers. I wish every one of you would listen in a very special way this morning. Our Father, I pray in Jesus' name that the Holy Spirit of the living God will take the truth that's in this verse, that deep underlying spiritual truth, and help people to see it. Lord, as you know, early this morning I prayed that every word of truth in these verses that the Holy Spirit of God would give them 40,000 volts of energy. And anything that I may think or anything that I may have thought of, I pray that you'd just discount that. Don't even let them remember it. But I pray that today in this congregation and those listening by the means of radio, it'll be a change in their life as a result of God speaking to us. 
In Jesus' name, amen and amen. After all the trials that Job had gone through, his wife had turned against him, and she says early in the temptation trials that he had, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? His familiar friends wouldn't even, wouldn't even speak to him. He had three friends who came and looked at him in mockery. They were pseudo-friends. They were false friends. And they criticized him, told him what was wrong with him for a long time. And Job has to take all that. And Job, now you have to get it in your mind, the man that we're reading of now is a man who is lying in ashes. His body is covered with boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. I can't think of anything that would be more uncomfortable to human flesh than that which was Job. Though he had been an extremely wealthy man, every single penny had been taken away. Every parcel of that which he possessed had been taken away. He was mourning the death of ten of his children. He was lying there a social outcast with a horrible disease that no one even wanted to be around. This is condition this man is in when I read these verses to you. Maybe we should have read it all, but not. We'll read chapter, uh, verse number 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. Now if you mark in your Bible as I do mine, two words marked. Mark the word when and the Lord turned to captive Job's when. Mark that. The first word in chapter in verse 11, then, mark that. Now, I want you to think about it. We'll get into it. I pray God that he'll begin a seed germ in your heart that'll make you want to study and pray more about it. First of all, I want us to look at the word captivity. You don't see that too many times in the word of God, but captivity. Then, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. The captivity. Will you please notice it didn't say God turned his poverty into wealth. It didn't say God turned his sickness into health. It didn't say God turned him as an outcast to one who's accepted by all the people. It didn't say any of the things that we normally would think of because those things are not captivity. The things that we just said, the sickness and the monetary uh, money and all of that he had was all physical. Captivity doesn't have to do with physical. Listen to me. See if I'm right. In captivity, a person may be deathly ill and yet still have the freedom of the Spirit and can roam the fields of imagination, enjoy the great things of God. Doesn't matter what's wrong with his body. A person can be as penniless as we used to say in the country, Job's turkey. And yet he can still travel those fields with the Holy Spirit of the living God and enjoy great things of God and can pray for people to be saved and pray for pastors to have compassion and pastors to have power. It's not talking about physical. It isn't talking about the outside things of the world. Captivity has nothing to do with that whatsoever. 
I, for the first time in a long time, I went through every book that I own looking for a meaning of the word captivity. I didn't find very much. Then I went to the only source. I ran reference on the word captivity in the Word of God. And I found that captivity, as I've mentioned, does not have to do with the physical, does not have to do with our possessions, but rather it has to do with the mind and the spiritual. Captivity. It isn't anything you can see. It's what a person believes and how he feels. Look now, if you will, the mind couldn't understand what had happened. Job would say, I don't understand what would happen. Come with me in our imaginations for a moment. Let's visit that first land that we read about. And there is, we see Job as he's walking out in his field. Let's go join him for a minute. Mr. Job, would you show us around? Oh, he said, I'd be happy to. Job, I read in the Word of God that you're an extremely wealthy man. Yes, the Lord has been good to me. And he shows us his fields that filled with plenty. We look out and we see all the oxen. We see the donkeys. And we see the camels. So many that it defies our counting them. Mr. Job, would you mind taking us into your home? And as we approach it, we're nearly in awe. We have never seen a house like that. Job, that has got to be the most beautiful home I've ever seen. Well, he said, the Lord has been good to me. Job, would you take us inside? Be glad to. And there we see furniture that has been brought from virtually every point of the world. And there we see carpet. And there we see things. And he says, now, you know God has given me ten children. They're all married and have homes of their own. He said, come, let me show you their homes. And we go look at their homes. Their home now doesn't come close to Job's. But they're still far and wide. You can speak of Job and people says, oh, yes, I know him. He's an extremely wealthy man. And then we say Mrs. Job probably was the best dressed lady of her day. She had anything that her heart could desire. Now, I want you to notice something that the Holy Spirit seemed to reveal to me as I was studying it. Job wasn't paper money. Do you know what I mean by that? It wasn't a fortune that he had made still on paper. That is the stock market or something had moved, but he hadn't got... No, his is what we'd call old money. I mean, he had had it a long time. The fact that there were that many camels, that many donkeys, and that many sheep, and that much of the fields, and that many servants indicates he had had it for a long time. Now, there's a world of difference in an extremely rich man who's... This is what we say old money than one who's just become a 10-cent millionaire, you know, overnight. Overnight money, they can lose it just as quickly, but not this man. Now, you see, he wasn't a fly-by-night. It wasn't overnight riches. Now, you have to get this in your mind. And when Job had all this to happen to him, every dime was gone, 10 children dead, his wife cursed him to his face. Friends wouldn't speak to him, covered in balls from his body, completely covered. No one to comfort him, no one to comfort him. Even God did not seem to be concerned, seemed to be concerned. Notice, his mind could not comprehend that, and neither would yours or mine. He was in captivity because he tried with his mind to determine what was wrong with him. And why was this working out? You know, when you really think about it, I think if we think of captivity somehow, 
a prison comes to our mind, though it has to be invisible. Let's just for the sake of understanding, let me show you some bars that are there. First of all, when a person is in captivity, you see a bar of depression. They're despondent. They're depressed. They have this D zone, D zone as I call it. Their brow is furrowed. Their eyebrows are pulled together. And they can't understand for the life of them why this is happening to their lives. May I pause long enough to say, I think I'm covering at some time or other the majority of the Christians who are listening to me this moment. There have been times when you've been down and the bar of depression has hindered you from doing what God wanted you to do. Depressed. And as a result of it, let me show you. I'm not going to take time to give you scripture for everyone. The Lord knows it's there. Listen, I'm reading from Job chapter 3, verse number 1. After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born. And the night in which it was said, There is a man-child conceived. He said, I wish I had never been born. Some of you say that. And the reason is there is a bar of depression in front of you. And then there's a bar of complaining. Depression always have a, has a sidekick. It's called complaining. Have you ever seen a despondent person who didn't complain? Have you ever seen a despondent person who didn't blame circumstances or other people for their faults? And because of that, they want to blame somebody and they're afraid to blame God, so they blame other people. Always when a person is despondent, always they're complaining. And their complaining then brings on a desire for sympathy. Listen what it says in, again now. I'm reading Job uh, chapter 7. And uh, let's see if we're sure I got it right now. Verse number 21. Listen. Chapter 7 and verse number 21. Why dost thou not pardon my transgression, take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt not seek me in the morning. But I, for I shall not be there. He said, why don't you just go on and kill me, God? You know, I read where a prophet named Jonah. I read where a prophet named Elijah said that. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought in your mind, just wish I didn't have to wake up in the morning? He wanted sympathy and began to feel sorry for himself. Then the thing about it, are you believing this? Job, this great man that we read of, began to have fear. Listen what it says in Job chapter 7, verse number 13. When I say, my bed shall comfort me, my couch shall ease my complaint, then thou scarest me with dreams and terrifiest me through the visions, so that my soul chooseth strangling and death rather than my life. Job said one of the things that comes about when you begin to experience depression, you begin to complain, you begin to seek for sympathy, Always with it, there comes fear. You have a fear of death, fear of losing your family. Fear and fear can go on and on and on. Yet the Lord says, perfect love casteth out all fear. You see, I'm talking about a prison wall of invisible bars that's called, as the Word of God tells us about him, the captivity of Job. Not his physical being. But his mind couldn't understand it, so he began these things. 
You know, I think it's for another reason, too. I think we have to understand, preachers especially listening to me, in this thing of fear, Sunday school teachers, people, listen to me. There are three things that you have to learn not to fear. Number one, do not fear what man can do to you. Do not fear what man can do to you. Secondly, don't look for the sympathy of mankind. Don't do it. Don't look for sympathy. How many today tell everybody you know all your problems? You want me to analyze it and tell you why you tell them? You're wanting sympathy. You make a mistake and you tell everybody your side of the story because you're wanting sympathy. And the last thing is, is don't curry the favor of man, but don't curry the sympathy of man. Those three things, the fear of man, the favor of man, and the sympathy of man, those are things that you don't want. You say, Brother Hudson, why are these in one sense of the word, but you've got to understand it, captivity is for a test. Let's in our mind now envision an engineer who's designed the architect, uh, the engineer designed a bridge, builds it across a great span of water, and there's opening. And he says, in essence, it's open, it's ready. Well, will it hold 10,000 pounds? Oh, and far more. Well, will it hold 20,000 pounds? Yes, and far more. He says, run the fastest car across it. Now run uh, a heavy car across it. Run a 10-ton truck across it. Test it. Run anything you want to across it. The bridge will hold. Do you not think God, the divine engineer, does us the same way? He builds us. He saves us. He places his grace in our heart. Then he says, test it. My grace is sufficient for every need. He says to Satan, test him. Hit him with everything you got. My grace is sufficient. He says to the world, test him with everything you got. You'll not pull them away from me. For my love and my tenderness and my grace is far more than the world can offer. I like that song. Uh, Take the world, but give me Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world could afford. That's written by a person, no doubt, who had gone through the test. Are you listening? And then there's a test sometimes of bereavement. And death comes in and with a snip of its old deadly fingers severs a soul loose from a body. And the Lord stands back with his arms folded and he says... Test me, death. My servant is strong. My servant is filled with the grace of the Lord. My servant can take it. God deliver me from these folk who fold up and die. Two of my sisters are here. I buried both of their husbands. I never one time heard them complaining or feeling sorry for themselves. You know why? They got character. You know why? They got the grace of God. And God says, test them. And when it's all over, the Lord looks and says, I can't bother them with death. They found a way of escape in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why God says, sorry not, even as others which have no hope. Sorry, sorry a little bit, but don't fold up. Act like you can't live any longer. It won't work that way. God's grace is sufficient. Then he says, now, 
All right? I want the world. I don't want the devil to look. Watch them. I'm going to allow everything to be taken away from them. But they'll still love me. I don't have to give them money to love me. If you'd ever analyze sometimes the love of your children, it might be based around the monetary gifts that you give them. If you take the gifts away, they may not love you. You ought to test it sometime. Most of us are afraid to do it, aren't we? But God says, whether they have a lot or have nothing, they'll still love me. And the captivity there sometimes is allowed for a test, but thank God, thank God, it doesn't go on forever. Then he says, there's another way. Test them in their children. Many years ago, and this is as far as I go identifying, I heard a preacher. We were having lunch together, and we were walking through, I still remember it, we were walking through, um, what do you call it? Not smorgasbord. Yeah, I guess smorgasbord. You go through and get your food and so on. A buffet. That's the word. A buffet. And he said to me, he, a little bit arrogantly, he's putting stuff on his plate. He, well, he said, you know, there's a, there's a saying now among preachers, lose your children, you lose your uh, credentials. And I thought about that. I thought about it. I thought about it. Four or five years ago, he lost his children. And I wondered if the same man putting the same food on the same plate would say, when you lose your children, you lose your credentials. Boy, we can be. And God says, test them in their children. Do anything you want. They'll still believe that my way's right. They'll still believe my word. They'll still believe my teaching for children. They will not waver. They will not fold up and give in to the world. And God is saying, then reproaches. You ever been reproached for being a Christian? You go to Northside. You mean out there where they believe in hellfire and brimstone? Well, I heard out there that, that you couldn't even join that church if you wore slacks. I've heard every one of those lies. I've heard if you smoke cigarettes, they won't even let you come in the door. We don't when you're smoking, but and we pray for you that you'll quit, but we don't do that. You know that. Reproaches. Well, I heard that Brother Hudson said if you didn't belong to Northside, you couldn't go to heaven. Doubtful, but not true, you know. <laughs> I'm saying this to all my black friends are here, and we got many members who are black and everything. Somebody said to me not long ago, they said that if a black person came over here, we'd beat them up. You know, reproaches. And the Lord says, reproach them. Let them suffer the reproach of the cross. They'll still stand tall. They are my children. And my grace is sufficient for every need. But there's also, not only in the captivity, but in the revelation. There's something happening all this. You say, oh, Brother Hudson, hmm, I'm not sure I want all that, but you're not through yet. You're not through yet. Look at the revelation. When Job went through this, listen what happened. This was just prior to now the captivity being turned. Listen to what it has to say in verse number 2 of our same chapter now. Verse, chapter 42, verse 2. I know that thou, uh, Job's talking to the Lord. I know that thou can do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. 
You know what he said? He said, uh, as a man, I thought I could understand what God was doing. And as a man, I thought if I didn't understand it, God shouldn't do it. And as a man, I thought if God did it and I didn't understand it, then God shouldn't do it. But he said, I changed my mind about that. He got a true knowledge of God, not just in that area. Please don't misunderstand me, and I am not being... I know they're baby Christians, and I know they have to grow and they have to learn. When you get a true knowledge of God, you'll understand why there's war, and you don't blame God for it. When, you're, when you have a true knowledge of God, you'll understand why little babies are born crippled and deformed, and like Brother Tim Kaufman's precious little girl, nearly born without her face and totally blind. I humanly can't understand that, but I know my Heavenly Father does, and that, that just solves it for me. That just solves it. We don't understand why people are hungry, and yet uh, because we know God, and by the way, you know, my heart goes out to those people in Ethiopia and places like that. A veteran missionary told me the other day, he said, I've been there, and I'll tell you exactly why they're starving, and I'll tell you why they'll continue to starve. He said without any thought whatsoever, they've been to the jungles, they've cut the wood, they've burned it, and they used it. They don't replace it, they don't thin it out, they don't do it, they just cut it. And he said the desert is taking the forest 15 feet every single year. And he said they have no jungles, have no forest to contain the moisture. It's becoming a desert. See, you understand things of why those people are starving when you have a true knowledge of God. And that's what he's saying. I couldn't figure it out with my mind, and I thought because I couldn't figure it out with my mind, it shouldn't be done. Then notice, if you will, I think there's a theory here that you need to understand. There's a theory of religion sometimes which makes prosperity the reward of goodness. In other words, let me, let me break it down very simply. You won't forget the way I'm saying if you listen. Sometimes people say, well, if I serve the Lord and if I tithe and if I'm faithful and if I, if I don't do this and don't do that, then, then I know that I'm going to be better off. That probably is absolute truth. But if that's the end goal of you serving the Lord, that's not right. That's not a true revelation of God and who He is and what He is. The true revelation of God, He says... Uh, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Though he feed me, though I starve, I'm still going to trust in him. Though I'm in favor with man, though I'm in disfavor with man, I'm still going to trust him. I'm going to stay with his word. I'm going to stay with his plan. I'm not going to change it for expedience sake. And then I think the best thing he did, he saw himself. For it says, does it not? Look in Job 42, verse 3 uh, and through 6. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful to me which I knew not. There's your thought developed that I was telling you. Because he couldn't understand it, he didn't think God ought to do it. Verse 4. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. In other words, he's saying of all these things, please listen to what I'm saying. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Now see goes beyond the, the physical eye. Now I understand you. And listen, wherefore 
summing all these things up, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Didn't we hear that lately in a message? Yeah, I think we did. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Then, after several verses, he says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And I'm associated with sinful people. And the Lord sent an angel with a tongue, got a fire coal off of the altar and touched his lips. I'm undone. You remember what the apostle Peter said when he saw the Lord, jumped into the water, swam to the shore and got out before him? He said, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinful man. And these people who have these great images of themselves being great Christians never have really gotten to him. For when you see him, you abhor yourself. You say, Lord, look at this old sinful body that I live in. Think of the desires it has. And that doesn't start depression. Now, Lord, I can survive and I can do what you want me to do. But I can only do it through you and your grace. My, what a difference. And he saw himself very quickly now. I want you to see the rewards. Did you notice what he said? And the Lord turned the captivity of Job, not when he took some kind of medicine or not when somebody came and gave him a handout. None of those things happened. When he prayed for his friends. Now, when he prayed for him, and we're talking about an accessory prayer interceding for other people. Now, folk, let me stop right here. I am not talking about something you think you can do and do it for two or three days. Well, Brother Hudson, I promise you this. I'll start this morning praying for my friend. That's not what I mean at all. All of us can do that. Every last person in this building can do that. And they should do that. But that's not what it means. Listen briefly. Talking about intercessory prayer. Do you remember Abraham? I don't think he ever shined as brightly as he did. Do you remember Genesis chapter 18 when the angels came and they were going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And there three times Abraham interceded not for himself, for he was not in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he prayed for those lost, licentious people that were there. He interceded the intercessory prayer three times. Oh, dear God. Moses, you remember, interceding for Israel. You remember how he held up his arms and prayed. And when he prayed, Israel would prevail and defeat the Philistines. And finally his arms got so tired they'd fall down. And finally two men came over, one on this arm, one on this, and they held his arms up and he prayed. It's a great intercessory prayer for those people. Stands out on the words of God. Will you listen please as I quote a verse of the Lord's Prayer? Listen carefully. Our, our, not my Father, our, that's collective, isn't it? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, give us this, give who? Not give me this day my daily bread. Listen, give us this day our, those are pronouns, collectively meaning the groups, us and our. God said in the intercessory prayer that he's teaching you and me that when I pray for my food, 
I'm going to pray that God will give other people food. When I pray for forgiveness, I pray that God will forgive other people too, not just the ones that sinned against me, but God would forgive other people as well. Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. You see all of Paul, listen to what Paul says. He said, I'm praying for Israel. He said, I pray that if need be and if necessary, I'm willing to be a curse from God. To be a curse from God meant that he'd never see God. That he'd never hear sweet, melodious voice in person. That he'd never do anything. He said, if it's, if it's necessary, if it's possible, I'll give myself to intercessory prayer. I'll give my life as a sacrifice if God will only save these Israelites. Listen to my heavenly Father when he was on the earth as he prays. They're driving tent pegs through his hands. I'm not sure it was Father, for, I think it was the Father, and I think every time he flinched, for he was in flesh just like mine and yours. I wish I knew how to say it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In accessory, for those who were driving tent pegs in his hands and in his feet, and the one who was a stick to spear into his side, though blessed comfort of all blessed comforts, he was dead then. But I want you to see and understand that he prayed the intercessory prayer. All the way through the Word of God, I picked this up. The men after whom I read in days gone by, all of them spent great time in intercessory prayer. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to read it. John 17 is his great intercessor. But did you know God actually prayed for me one time? He prayed for you, John 17. You see, I believe that intercessory prayer is the sweetest prayer that God can hear. And Job pray for, prayed for his offending friends. And as a result of it, offending friends. You know, it's not, it's not in the trouble to pray for your friends, is it? I mean, your friend friends. That's no problem. But he said, pray for those. You know, in the New Testament, he says it in a way we can maybe better understand it. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Not in it, Lord. Now, you know what they've been about. I'm praying for them. Look what a great Christian I am, Lord. I'm praying for them. No, no, pray for them. Pray for them. Now, God said to these three friends who had really chastised Job, he said, I'm not going to hear your prayers. If Job wants to pray for you, I'll listen to him. But he's the only hope you've got. And they had, they had raked him, as we say, over the coals. And Job prayed for those offending friends. And Job prayed for them. They were haughty friends. Don't you despise stuck-up people. But you know what God said do for stuck-up people? Pray for them. Pray for them. And uh, he prayed for friends who couldn't pray. Have you ever thought about that? And in chapter 42, verse 7 and 8, listen. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said unto Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee, and uh, my wrath is kindled against thee, and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the things that is right as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and, for my, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, for him will I accept. 
You know you ought to pray for somebody that's out of touch with God for a Christian who's out of fellowship with God can't pray. If I regard iniquity in my heart, my prayers are not heard. And you ought to pray for somebody who can't. Somebody's out of fellowship. Don't criticize them. Don't put them down. Don't say they're getting what they deserve. Don't say I knew it was coming. Just pray for them. You say, brother, that's how you pray for them. I don't know where God wants all of you to do it, but I know what he says for me. I said, Lord, you got some blessings for me today. He always has. Would you take one of them and give them a so-and-so? And one of them give them a so-and-so, and they give every one of them blessings away to someone who's despitefully you. You better believe this man standing in his pulpit nearly 31 years has had some people down through the years who's criticized him. I hadn't always done this, folk. I always had the theory in my mind, if they, if they hit you on the cheek, turn the other one. I was going to turn the other one. I was going to turn my right shoulder with my right fist, and I was going to, you know what I'm saying. I thought that was the way you did it, but no, sir. I guarantee you I can accomplish ten times more with intercessory praying than I can in offending them physically or abusing them physically. And as a result of it, he does. Listen, did you know, have you ever thought about the heat we've had recently in the cold? Listen to me. Did you realize the heat can get to you. That's why people have sunstrokes. That's why people says, I've got to sit down, ringing wet with perspiration. I've got to sit down. Heat will get to you. Now cold, cold will harden you. Cold will harden you. Now listen to me. Prosperity is like heat. It can get to you. Adversity is like the cold. It'll make you harder towards it, more defensive against it. And God can protect you that way. Now, just one word, and we've got to be through. Here's the lesson from it. What are we to learn from it this morning? You know, the more he thought about his bankruptcy, the poor he got. Some of you here this morning listen to me on hard times. You'll spend the biggest part of the day worrying about that, thinking about it. The more Job thought about his bankruptcy, the poorer he got. Are you listening to me? Those who are listening by the means of radio on the bed of affliction, you're listening to me? The more you think about your adversity, whatever it may be, the more you think about it, the more you're going to suffer. He thought about... I wrote this down after I wrote it. I thought maybe I shouldn't have, but I did. The more he thought about his sorry wife, she was sorry. Boy, she deserted him. You know when a man leads, needs leaving, loving the most, a man needs loving the most when he least deserves it. Job never said an unkind word to her. She looked at him dead in the eyes. Why don't you just curse God and die? I'd be glad to get rid of you. God's done all this to you. You've served him. Tell him to kill you and get on out of my way. The more he thought about that sorry wife, the more concerned he got. The more he thought about that windstorm that blew down his houses, or his house and his children's house, the more he thought about it, the more afraid he became of storms. You ought to analyze sometimes why you're afraid of things. You see... 
He didn't pray. You can't find a place in where he prayed, Lord, give me back my money. Didn't call in a financial advisor as you and I do, try to figure out how to get his money back. He didn't call in Dale Carnegie to tell him how to win friends and influence people and didn't call in some marriage counselor to tell him how to get his wife back and get her straightened out and so on like that. No, sir, he said there's something more important than that. If I'm not willing to do that, I shouldn't have any money and I oughtn't to have a wife and I oughtn't to have any friends. There's something more important than that. This is the gist of my message. What was it? Oh, I'm going to be an intercessory prayer for my friends. All those that despitefully use me, those who's lied against me, and those who's used me, and those who just write on that doesn't matter. And then the Lord turned the captivity of Job. When, Lord? When he prayed for his friends. Did you notice he didn't do one thing to recoup his losses financially? And God gave him twice all he had. He didn't do one thing about his children. God gave him ten more. Didn't do one thing about his wife. Doesn't say about their meeting. I'm going to ask when I get to heaven about it. But nevertheless, they seem to, everything seemed to be made all right. And as a result of it, watch it now. When he started praying for his friends, I hear something. Clack up. There goes that old bar of depression. Clack up. And there goes another bar. Clack up. And the first thing you know, Job's free. Job free. All oh, that's gone. He's still got balls. He's still penniless. But now God can work. And suddenly God restores it all. The last shackle has dropped. And look what it says in verse 11. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters, and they brought him all money and everyone in that earring of gold, which is a measure of weight. And Job had twice that he had to begin with. When did it happen? When he attended somebody's seminar and learned a certain way to do things. Oh, uh, well, when you read somebody's books and saw their films and took their study course. Nope, not that either. Oh, I know when it was, brother. That's when they went to a Bible concert. Oh, man. No, they didn't. When they had the compassion from God to realize that the most important thing in this world is to pray for your friends. God turned the captivity of Job and he was free. And God blessed him with a good long life. Let's stand together. Holy Spirit of the living God, I can only try so feebly but with human lips to convey that which only the Holy Spirit can really impart. Lord, if I haven't convinced anybody this morning, maybe there's just a question mark. If there's not a question mark, at least the seed is in their hearts. And they can see for themselves. Lord, I'm sure many people go home and say, I'm going to start praying for my friends. I'll start today. I'm going to do it. But Lord, you know, as you show me the Word of God, that's not what it is. It's a whole total concept. Understanding God as Job did. Lord, maybe they ought to read Job. Maybe it would help them. But Father, now I'm concerned about unsaved people here this morning. I'm concerned about them. I'm praying for them now. And Lord, I'm praying for people as that needs to come for rededication. Nameless rededication just needs to come for a closer walk with the Lord. I'm praying for people here this morning who need to come and join this church by letter of baptism or my statement. Let it be a great outpouring for thou art worthy of any and all honor 
that we receive here this morning. In Jesus' name, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, the choir's going to sing. And as they sing softly, tenderly, prayerfully, and pleadingly, you come out of your place and come on down there. Whatever that need is, come on to him. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish and stand there. Just come on right now. We thank you for listening to the Making Much of Jesus podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen. And join us next time for the Making Much of Jesus podcast.